So welcome to the podcast. This is Douglas Wilson. Glad you're joining me. This is episode 247 of the podcast. Not only the podcast, but the podcast. I want to start by talking about the forgiveness of student loan debt, which um, the president uh, just announced. So um, there are numerous economic fallacies that uh, that support this notion. Um, but let's uh, let's begin with the most obvious aspect of this, which is uh, the people who took out the loan and obligated themselves to repay the loan are now not going to have to do that. And because the world is the way it is, somebody's going to have to do that. Some, someone's going to pay the loan off because the loan is not going to be paid off by those who took the loan out. That means the loan is going to be paid off by individuals who didn't take the loan out. Not only is it going to be paid by people who didn't take the loan out, but it's going to be paid, student loan debts are going to be paid by people who didn't take the loan out and who didn't go to college. So um, certain individuals got the benefit of a college education and indebted themselves to do this. And then many tens of thousands of others who did not get a college education and did not get that benefit are going to be left holding the bag. They're going to they're going to be the ones you have to pay because it's the Tom Stoffel uh, principle, right? Which is there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. It's uh, not whether this loan is going to be paid off. It's going to be paid off by someone. It's not whether, but which. So uh, let's say someone goes into uh, goes into debt and borrows ten million dollars. Uh, he if he defaults on the loan, doesn't pay it back, then the, then the debt is paid by the creditor. The debt is paid by the one who loaned the money. Some, if it's real money that we're talking about, if it's uh, cash that you can actually go out and buy things with, then someone's going to make it good. And that's because water levels out. You, you know, you, it's going to seek its level, and the cost of whatever goods were purchased will be born by someone somewhere somehow and i think i'm reminded of uh thomas soul's comment that we're rapidly approaching the uh the <laughs> the moment where nobody is responsible for what they do and everybody is responsible for what somebody else did um we've uh, we're living in upside down world we're living in clown world we're living in a time when personal responsibility is a thing of the past. Now, um, if, you, if, you just erase, if you just erase the debt, you have to be aware of the fact that you're not erasing the debt. You're moving it. You're transferring it. You're, move, you're scooching it over to another place in the ledger where somebody else is going to have to make it good. So rather than requiring the people who agreed to make it good, make it good, you are saddling people who didn't make any any uh, agreement of the kind, and you're going to force them to make it good. Uh, in other words, it's just simple. It's just simply larceny. Um, so the, the uh, this is a bribe that is being offered to a significant part of the uh, uh, voting 
public, and it's a freebie. It's a it's another example of free chocolate milk for everybody. And let's um, uh, let's see if we can uh, bribe our way into the good favors of the American public. Now, all this said, it's just uh, just it's a scoundrel move. Forgiving student loan debt is a scoundrel move. At the same time, it was a scoundrel move for the universities to make it so easy for people to go into that debt. Uh, you know, this it seemed like a good idea at the time, right? The the whole uh, system of financial uh, monkey shines, let's call them, that props up the higher ed system in America needs to go. And fortunately, they're behaving in such a way that at some point it will go. Uh, Anything that cannot be sustained won't be. Anything that cannot keep on going won't keep on going. And so we have to, uh, you know, recognize that, right? So forgiveness of student loan debt is, uh, it makes, it does make uh, good economic sense, uh, but it makes less moral sense. It's just simply larceny. and. I would encourage uh, Christians who um, have a certain amount of um, student loan debt uh, to try to figure out a way to not take that forgiveness. Uh, Because one of the things I've urged for years is that Christians need to, as we're dealing with a gargantuan, swollen state, we need to learn how to and practice refusing the benefits first, refusing the bribes first. Um, instead of uh, complaining, uh, complaining about government overreach as soon as it pinches us and leaving it alone when, as long as they're handing out the goodies, that's, uh, that's no good. Always will be God. So continuing on with episode 247 of the podcast, um, as we continue, to advance through this rigorous course that we call hamartiology, we come to a set of Greek cognate words, which all have to do with um, setting an ambush. Now, I, I should say one other thing, not, nothing to do with this word, but as as I'm working through this uh, lexicon that I have, looking up these words, I want to, um, there may be an OCD person out there, some listener, who is who is transcribing these sections, these hamartiology sections, and has them all in a file cabinet in alphabetical order, in Greek alphabetical order. Um, I'm just giving you fair warning. First, uh, give that that particular person fair warning. They should uh, seek pastoral counseling first about their compulsive behavior. And secondly, they should know that this one is out of order because of a screw-up on my part. I failed to mark the uh, place where I left off last time and did it again and then caught my mistake late and had to had to bring another word in earlier. So this does not alphabetize in Greek the way it ought to. Right? So don't don't fret yourself about that. But having said that, I want to talk about a set of Greek cognate words, three of them. The first is anadron, anadron, E-N-E-D-R-O-N, anadron, and it's translated as lying in wait. Uh, we see this in Acts 23, uh, 16, Acts 23, 16. And when Paul's sister's son heard of their lying in wait, he went and entered into the castle and told Paul. Now, there's some interesting things about this. You remember there was a band of uh, zealous 
Jews who took a uh, took an oath that they would not um, they they would fast until they had killed Paul, and Paul's sister son hears about it and comes and warns Paul. So they're going to set they're going to set an ambush. Now, several things that are interesting about this. Well, interesting to me. I remember this story when I was a little boy. I remember this story just tickled me uh, no end. These men. Um, these men vowed to eat nothing until they killed Paul, and then Paul got away, and he, 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 <laughs> they must be hungry. All right, so I remember how much the, this story uh, pleased me as a young boy. That's one thing. Uh, um, another more serious thing is this uh, issue of Paul's sister's son. Um, Paul's sister's son, uh, Paul has a nephew in Jerusalem, and this nephew in Jerusalem is part of a family that's close enough to the conspirators to hear about the conspiracy, and yet committed enough or attached enough to Paul to want to warn Paul about it. That's that's really interesting. So we don't know if Paul's sister was a Christian. We don't know if um, we we don't know. It, this might be a family ties thing. This might be a um, shared faith thing. We we just. She appears, her son, rather her son appears, warns Paul about the plot, and disappears again. The second word is enedreo, E-N-E-D-R-E-U-O. And this is a verb meaning to lie in wait for. Paul's nephew uses this word when explaining the plot to the centurion. So uh, in Acts 23, 21, which is just a few verses down from the one I just read, but do not thou yield unto them, for there, this is the nephew talking, but do not thou uh, yield unto them, for there lie in wait for him of them more than forty men, more than forty men, which have bound themselves with an oath, that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him, and now and now are they ready, looking for a promise from thee. So uh, they want Paul to, to be transferred to another location so they can waylay him, kill him on the way. This same verb is used by Luke in his gospel. Uh, this, Of course, Luke wrote the book of Acts, but same verb is used by Luke in his gospel when talking about the attitude of those who were trying to debate with Jesus and who were routinely losing. They were furious about this, and in Luke eleven fifty four, it says, laying in wait for him and seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they might accuse him. Now, they're laying in wait for him here. Uh, in the previous situation, uh, it was a literal, a- actual, literal, physical ambush. And here in Luke, it's a verbal ambush. They're laying in wait, but it could have consequences just as deadly at the end of the at the end of the road. So they're lying in wait for him, seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they might accuse him. And then let's say if it was a capital offense that they accused him of, then he um, could be executed for it. So. Lying in wait, this kind of um, uh, this kind of thing is uh, sinful, plotting, conniving, so on. The last word, obviously related, is enedra, e n e d r a, and describes the ambuscade another way, and it's translated as laying wait. This is um, Acts twenty five three, and desired favor against him that he would send for him to Jerusalem, laying wait in the way to kill him. So. Um, Paul is, when, when the centurion in Jerusalem hears about the, the plot from Paul's nephew, he has him whisked away, and he's taken down to uh, Caesarea. And 
uh, by night. And so that ambush fails. But then the Jews ask for Paul to be brought back up again because they're going to try the same thing again. That's in 25.3. So they wanted to get Paul, whether going or coming. Somehow, some way, they wanted to kill him. God don't never change. He's God. So continuing on with the podcast, episode 247. Uh, my book review today is a book I just finished called The Psychology of Totalitarianism. The Psychology of Totalitarianism by a gent named Desmet, D-E-S-M-E-T, Desmet. Now, um, there are a few qualifications at the front end. I don't, uh, I don't agree with um, everything. I don't agree with the basic outlook or framework of his worldview. Um, he clearly believes in God somehow, some way, but he's he's a bit. Um, Oh, maybe mystical, uh, if you want to speak of it that way. Um, he is um, he's he's not coming from a rigorous evangelical and reformed worldview. Let's just put it that way. At the same time, it is a very sensible book. It's a very good book, the psychology of totalitarianism. And what he what he's doing is examining um, the last two years. In the light of what we've learned about various mass movements, um, uh, what what's called mass formation. So, how is it possible? And and what we saw in the last two years was the first time that we had a ma- mass formation that was global. Um, now, it wasn't each and every person. Uh, some people were not swept up in it. A few countries were not swept up in it. But it was truly a global phenomenon. The masks, the lockdowns, the vaccines, everything. This was, this was a hysterical mass formation moment. And when something becomes so screamingly obvious to everybody all at one time because of this mass formation— uh, of course, it is the easiest thing in the world to hammer those who are not going along. Um, and what uh, Desmond does in this book, The Psychology of Totalitarianism, is he talks about what the preconditions of this sort of thing, um, what the preconditions might be. One of them is extreme loneliness, disconnectedness, nebulous anxiety. So when you have a population that's in a churn and 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 then you isolate them in their basement you, you the mass formation begins because they were already feeling alone and isolated but then you lock them up or require them to stay housebound or you you put them in lockdown all you're going to do is accentuate the uh, the problem so when there's this it, I compare large um groups of people to thunderheads. So you, you can't collect that much water vapor in the sky in a huge thunderhead without an electrical charge developing. And that electrical charge is, the, the cloud is made up of uh, nebulous, undefined anxieties. And when what happens in the mass formation moment is that a culprit or a threat is identified, and everybody simultaneously wheels on that threat, and that's where the lightning strikes. That's where the the charge that is built up. 
strikes. Now, uh, to his credit, Desmond also acknowledges that you, we, ha- we have had in reaction uh, what you might call mini mass formations. And this is where a lot of the fruitier conspiracy theories come from. They're people who don't go along with uh, the sort of the received mainstream opinion about the virus or the need for the vaccine and whatnot, which I do not. I, I think the whole thing is a scam huge scam. But there's some people who don't go along with it, but they are they are behaving in the same sort of way as the people who are going along with it. They're just stampeding in a different direction. So so there's some some folks cluster they only want to hear what they want to hear. And so the bad guy for the for the mass formation globally, the bad guy is the virus or the virus deniers or the or Governor DeSantis, those are the bad guys for the for, for the major um, group for the groupthink. But in the mini mass formations, the bad guy would be um, Anthony Fauci. The villain, the villain of the piece, would be those uh, you know Bill Gates, Anthony Fauci, George Soros, all of the uh, all of that sort of thing. So. Um, what are we to do? One of the things that uh, Desmond points out is the this is a the totalitarian moment where, where you can brook no opposition. The other side can't be allowed to talk. The stakes the stakes are too high. We have to censor everybody uh, who wants to deny the virus or the, you know whatever the threat is currently. Um, it's a this is societally speaking a high fever. And high fevers always break. Uh, they're they're going to break one of two ways. Either the patient dies and the fever goes away, or the fever breaks and the patient recovers. There are some indications that big sectors of the populace are coming back to their senses. They're, they are uh, some of them sheepishly, some of them trying to deny, trying to deny that they went big in for this. Uh, and others, you know, were skeptics all along to their credit. The issue, the fundamental issue is, is not the lockdowns, it's the lockstep. Um, so if you came from Mars uh, and wanted to, hey, what's everybody doing? And somebody said, well, let me bring you abreast of this debate. You you just got here. You don't know anything about the virus. You don't know anything about the protocols. You don't know anything about human biology and so on. But you should be able to tell which side won't let the other side talk, right? Which side won't let the other side talk? You should be able to tell at a glance whether whether or not you can identify who is the correct one. You should be able to tell right away who is the coercive one. Who is the totalitarian one? Who doesn't want to let these ideas duke it out? Um, the the censorship of that's gone on over the last two years, brazenly and openly, um, without apology, is simply is simply uh, breathtaking. So that's that's what I think. <laughs> Yeah.